Welcome to Better Than Nothing. I'm Ken Root, a veteran of agricultural journalism. I've lived an exciting life that allowed me to make many friends. Better Than Nothing is my self-deprecating way of saying what you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. These are the sounds of the Indianapolis 500 Motor Speedway Memorial Day, Memorial Sunday race. This is Ken Root. Rich Hull is with me. Rich and I have been coming to this race for a long time. We're now sitting here on turn one. We've been several places on the track, but the first time this high in this turn. And uh, although there's a lot of noise around, we'll get that behind us here in a little while, let you hear some of the sounds of the cars and also uh, of the people around us. Rich, how many years have you been coming to this race? This will be my 29th year. 29th. Now, both of us came in 1983 together on a fluke, and then you turned it into an, uh, an obsession in the 90s. That's right, but one of the things that helped that along, Ken, I had a job in Indianapolis. I was head of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association and the Beef Council, and uh, this was the, the race had been a part of my life from since I was a small kid. Uh, well, when was the first time you ever remember hearing the race? Probably 53 or 54, 55 maybe, somewhere in there. I was cultivating corn, and my dad knew how much I loved this race. He did, too. And he put a tractor radio on, one of those great big old things that blasted, and you know, he could hear it far away better than I could right there sitting on a tractor. Uh, so that's why both of us wear hearing aids today. That's exactly right. That old Super M, you know, you <laughs> you were doing your first cultivation of corn at that time. Sometimes the corn was not more than about six inches tall, so you still had the shields on the cultivator. Yep. So you were constantly looking down off on the right, make sure you stayed on that row and didn't get off a row. Those were great times, and to me, growing up, hearing this race on the radio, to me, and it remains today, one of the most exciting radio events I've ever heard. Well, this race is really hard to describe to a person who hasn't been here, but the imagination of millions of people who haven't been here is strong enough to handle it. That's right, Ken, and back when we came in 1983, I know you've said a couple times, you didn't know what to do, I didn't either, but I wasn't as surprised maybe as you were because I had a vision in my mind what this all looked like and what it was like from not only people I'd talked to had been here. My dad attended it before World War II started as a young high school guy. I, I think they either skipped class or did their spring, had their spring field day to Indianapolis to enjoy the race or something like that. I don't remember the exact story. Well, before we get started with the pre-race uh, activities, which are a part of the culture here. Let's go back to why this racetrack ever wound up in the first place. As I understand it, it was because in roughly 1911, they couldn't run cars on the road to test them because the roads were so bad. Yes, and what an achievement back in 1911 to get an automobile to travel 500 miles yeah. without a problem. And you know, in those days, two people rode in a car. They had an engineer and the driver. And that happened for several years. Well, the racetrack was called the Brickyard because when they first built it, a two and a half mile oval on a dairy farm, they wound up realizing that the gravel was detrimental to all of them 
they couldn't control very well. It threw it on the other cars. And so they decided they needed to hard surface it, but they didn't have anything else. That's right. You know, the days of pouring concrete, that was kind of unheard of in those days. So brick was really the only thing. Can you imagine laying brick around this two and a half mile oval? I just, I can't imagine that work that that had to take. Well, it would take a long time to do it. The track now, of course, is perfectly smooth asphalt. It sloped about eight degrees on the uh, corners. And that is good for this type of car because they have such down pressure. But NASCAR races in here, and this is not nearly what they want. No, it's not. They got to have the bank curves and all that in order to make that their races work. But you know, the Brickyard is is, is coming as big a classic as this is, although it's not a very exciting race. We were here for the hundredth race. Now they stopped racing a couple of times as I understand it, and that's why it took more than 100 years to get 100 races, but it was a celebration to be here on that 100th race. Yes, it was. They, they stopped it during World War II, and so it didn't run during then, and, and then after World War II, this really was just a pile of weeds. And then a family by the name of Holman, uh, they came out of Terre Haute, uh, they, they bought the track, and really turned it into what it is today. Neither one of us are real authorities about the specifics and the history here. Rich is pretty good at it though. But it has turned over one more time. The Holman George family kept it until just recently. Yeah, again, you know, like a lot of things, you talk about agribusinesses that go from generation to generation. Really, they'd run out of generations with this family. They, they didn't want to be a part of it anymore and uh, Roger Penske ended up buying it, and uh, I think he'll be a great keeper of all this tradition. Uh, you know, this, this is hollowed ground for the racing world here. This is called, uh, you know, the speedway capital of the world, the motor racing capital of the world, and it will continue to be that, I think, for many years. There is one good agricultural connection, and that is when ethanol came out, these cars were running on methanol, which is basically wood alcohol, and it's very difficult to handle, but it gave them what they needed on uh, speed uh, and ignition quality. But Tony George became a champion of ethanol, and they were, back about 10, 12 years ago, switched over, and they were running 100% ethanol in these cars. Yes, Ken, you know, at that time you were working in Iowa, and the Iowa corn growers were a big, big part of not only the advertising programs on your station, but just programming in general. And so I, I can remember you coming here. You had a car that was all uh, decked out and looked like an ear of corn going down the road, as I recall. And man, you, you worked hard here those years. Ethanol played such an important role here. Well, ethanol um, was a fuel that was being used in passenger cars. And even though these cars go so fast and are so sleek, they have been the basis for improvements in vehicles all through this 100 years. They have. You know, the. The windshield wiper was invented here. I think the left turn signal was invented here. <laughs> they don't use those in Iowa, though. No, no. <laughs> and the rear view mirror. Yes, the rear view mirror, which is a very big thing, came out of this race. And well, they're getting ready to announce people, so we're going to let them come by. We'll give you play-by-play -play of things, and we'll, after the race, go through some illustrations of just what it's like to be here. We walked about a mile, and we walked through a crowd the entire time. And Rich, just one more thing. In comparison, turn three, how many people sit there? 
over 100,000. It's, it's as much as a Super Bowl set in turn three, where we're at probably between 60 and 80,000. And then, you know, you got the straightaway with all the suites and all that. So it's truly a huge event. The total number of people, because it's private, is really never released. Number of people that sit here, but I've heard it's um, up to 400,000. Yes, and I, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Uh, it's, it's the biggest sporting event in the world. You know, and back in the days when qualifications, when they had uh, qualification day, was the second biggest sporting event in the world because there, there would be over 100,000 people attend that. But that doesn't really happen anymore. Ken Root and Rich Hull at the Indy 500 2022. At the Indianapolis 500 year 2022, a race that we drive a thousand miles to to see them run 500. Rich Hull and I are here in the first turn. First time we've been here in this turn. We're up um, almost double alphabet. What do you think of the view? Oh, I think it's wonderful. We can see all of turn one, all of turn two, all the short shoot. We can see the pagoda. Now, a lot of people come to a racetrack and they think they ought to be able to see it all. Is there any place on this track you truly can? Just on top of the pagoda is all you can do. And that is not where the fans sit. That's no. where the uh, officials sit. That's right. So it is a big, big track. Um, the main grandstand here on the front area, those are supposedly the best seats because you can see the race, you can see the pits. But those things are kept for generations, aren't they? Yes. You, uh, we were lucky in 1983 to set in there, but those were seats that had belonged to Eli Lilly, I think, for decades, and probably still they probably still own them. But. What do you think of the condition of the track in the first year under Penske? Oh, I think it's beautiful. You know, when he purchased this, he made a comment to one of the sports writers here in Indianapolis that he wanted to turn this into an Augusta National, you know, the where the Masters is held, where it's so beautiful all the time. He's got this really done to perfection. Track's in beautiful shape. And you know, at the 500, you never see all the advertising on the track that you see at other racetracks. They just don't allow that here. And it's a very, it's a very high quality, you know, very good deal, I think. Well, I'm looking at the mowing, and that's as good as a fairway and better than most places that I've ever played golf. So it is absolutely beautiful. Around the edges, they've got a lot of safety people. And you've told me through the years to watch them. They have a critical role here, don't they? Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, to best, first of all, to protect the drivers. Second of all, to protect uh, the fans. And uh, this race has not been without its difficulties with people getting injured. But uh, they've pretty well perfected that now with the overhang they got of the fencing now and the barriers they've got. Uh, it's got to be a pretty horrific thing now to somebody to really get. Well, in this very turn, I was here when they had a terrible crash at the beginning of a race. Uh, can you remember that time? Yes, we were sitting over in turn three, Stan Fox. And probably where we are is where he finally came to rest, maybe down a little further. But the cocoon that they have wrapped around these people in these cars had actually broken loose and his legs were hanging out that cocoon. Well, they, they, cl they claim it's like a bathtub that they sit in as their protection, but I saw pictures afterwards. At the time, all I saw was smoke, but afterwards, and he was basically hurtling through the air 
just in that little cocoon. Yes, that's right. Those are some very famous pictures for that from that accident that you can see over at the museum here at Indianapolis 500. That the man actually survived that. He has a great deal of impairment now, but he he actually lived through that. So, so that is the danger of this race. But they've taken some of the danger out of it with what they call a safer barrier around the entire wall system. What is it? Well, I, the way I understand it, it's just a honeycomb type thing done with uh, plastic and stuff like that. It absorbs the crash. And virtually any racetrack, NASCAR or IndyCar now has these. This, this isn't just to this track, but this was the first track to have it. And I believe it was developed by an engineer in Nebraska. I'm not quite sure on it, but it was farther out in the Midwest, I know. But I want to almost say it came from Nebraska. So a two-and-a-half-mile track, the outer side, where the, the cars would fly off of if they get to going too fast and lose traction, has this white barrier all the way around it. And I've seen some cars hit it. It's got springs behind it, too, or something else. It's, uh, it's very well designed. It won't necessarily save your life, but unless the crash is just horrific, it appears to be able to cushion the impact. And another thing it does, Ken, is that it really prohibits the cars, when they hit it, from being pushed back out into the traffic of the other cars. start this race it always gets very interesting here we've got the national anthem we've got to have one more thing though what is it back home again in indiana jim neighbors sang it for a generation the thunderbirds look good didn't they they sure did we saw them practice yesterday but it's really spectacular we could see them way off in the distance where we're setting that was really neat one year with the stealth bomber we didn't see it until it was right on us that's right we talked earlier it was in the clouds we didn't think they were going to have a flyover because of weather, and then there it was all of a sudden. We've just had another parade lap. So that you can hear it, I'll wait till they all get by. The cars, when they come by here on these parade laps, are warming their tires up, so they go back and forth up and down the track. And then each successive parade lap, they get a little faster. The pace car stays in front of them, and you cannot pass the pace car or you lose a lap, and pretty much means you lose the race. Now, as these cars continue, they'll get more and more deeply seated and more comfortable, and then they'll really get ready to go. So here we go again. We've got the pace car out in front by about uh, 200 yards. Now we've got the first of the race cars. Cars in front on this first turn and rows of three. The rest are kind of hanging back because they know they've got a lot less chance of winning. They all want to get a great start. It's a flying start in this race. That means that 
cars will be at speed when they cross the start line, and it is something to behold. Are we green? Will be. They got back in their rows. All right, we'll see if they go green. They'll know it on the third turn. Straightaway. It takes about 47 seconds to do two and a half miles. The numbers on that indicate somewhere around 230 miles an hour. They hang it out. We'll see how much. They come back in. They've excited 400,000 people, that's for sure. And they're back. times they'll do this. They'll get a hundred laps in to call it an official race. If they do that, then no matter what happens, there'll be a winner. If not, they'll push it off to another day and go again. We've had that happen, but with the weather today, it looks like the race will run unless there's some other type of emergency that would shut it down. These cars are backed up by huge crews where they come the third time. that was they're strung out a little bit more now as the cars at the front tend to push out and the cars at the back fall behind. It'll be kind of comfortable here for a little while, but it gets exciting when they move into the pits for the first time that they have to get fuel and tires, and they'll do that about every 60 miles until they get to the end of the race. Indianapolis 500 is over. We're back at the home of my good friend Rich Hull and both of us uh, sat there to watch the race yesterday afternoon. Rich, it was a beautiful day. Um, it takes a little bit of determination to sit there for the full race, but we made it. Yes, we did. I, I was pretty proud of both of us. I didn't have to get up during the race to go down below, but boy, going down those steps at the end of that race yesterday, that was that was a challenge for me. We, you know, we were almost to the top of our stands, and it was a sea of humanity, without a doubt. The race in front of us unfolded uh, pretty well. Um, I would be a little critical of our ability to keep up with things from the screens that they had out in front of us, and the fact that the cars go so fast, it's very hard to, except for colors, keep track of who's who. That's right, and uh, 
You know, we had several uh, yellow flags yesterday, and then, of course, at the end, they stopped the race so they could finish, hopefully, under green, and after, they only had two laps to go, and it didn't finish under green. There was an accident again, but he was so far ahead that it didn't make any difference at that point in time. So, Well, the overall uh, experience and the handling of what we think is a quarter million plus people truly was amazing. I never saw anything out of the ordinary, and I think a part of it was that people seemed so courteous to each other, even though some of them had libations in great quantity. It was a good day. Yes, it was, and I like to think that's just good Indiana or good Midwest uh, hospitality is what it is. I've always seen that at that race. We have never, all the years we went, I've never had an incident at that race where I thought, I was mistreated or saw anybody mistreated and a uh, problem, you know. Uh, it looked like there were some fireworks going off in the infield once in a while, but that always happens. And Well, it's just a truly an amazing place. We got in the car to leave, and we could still see the track for, what, an hour? <laughs> yeah, we didn't move very far in an hour. I, I don't know if we moved 500 feet in an hour, Ken. Again, thank you for being the driver. But, uh, you know, once we got through that, one corner where we had to make a left-hand turn that's the trouble they make left-hand turns during the race they make what 400 of them or 800 of them something like that us trying to make one left-hand turn to get on a road to get out of the whole area but uh they handle it well you know they're they're pretty experienced at that there and and the the uh police officials and all that they they know how to handle traffic and everybody was pretty courteous well, it was a great day. I appreciate you and I getting the chance once again to uh, share that experience. And, uh, you know, let's let it settle for a while and then uh, think about next year. It looked awfully good to have a flat screen TV and a recliner <laughs> when we got back home. Does this mean you're not going home and ordering tickets tomorrow, the first day you can order tickets or, for the 2023 race? <laughs> You know, I've got to drive today. I'll think about it. I complete the other 500 miles of my challenge to go 1,000 miles to watch them race 500. That may be the most difficult today, but uh, it's good to have you back home again in Indiana. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories, send an email to ken at betterthannothing.com. Nothing is spelled N-U-T-H-I-N. If you can't remember that, send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. As I now turn 73 years old, I've decided to have two kinds of days, good ones and great ones. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.